0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises he kept then fulfill our deepest longings now.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Well, I have to admit, I'm feeling a little bit lonely. Uh, First row across the entire front here is empty. I'll just take that as a coincidence um, this morning. Now, I'm really glad you're all here. My name's Kevin, and I'm really excited because today marks seven days until Christmas. Just one week, that's all you've got, and I don't know if that immediately sends tension into the room or comfort or what that does, Uh, but no doubt all of us are into full swing into our traditions, right? Maybe you've got your tree, you're decorating, uh, tinsel everywhere, singing angels and snowmen around your house. I don't know whatever your traditions are, but no doubt we're all into full swing of those things, looking forward to celebrating Christmas. Uh, one of the traditions that we have in my family is that on Christmas Eve, we all get new pajamas. We started this when the boys were young. We all get new pajamas, and we put them on on Christmas Eve. We kind of gather together and just kind of enjoy time together in our nice, new, comfy PJs. Yes, I'm ready for all the judgment, all of your teasing and your jokes. Yes, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable in that admission. But we also open stocking gifts, which are usually a bunch of candy and some gifts that make us laugh. And we also have a birthday cake because we celebrate Jesus' birth. And it's just a great, fun time, and it's a fun tradition that we have made together. But this year... You know, our tradition is kind of overshadowed by a hard reality. A couple weeks ago, we had a death in my, in my family, my aunt. And then just a few days um, apart from that, another death. You know, and as I thought about that, those losses made me realize it's really easy to use our traditions to ignore reality. Especially this time of year, right, we can use our traditions to kind of escape out of the pain that is ever so present in our lives. You know, right now would be a good time to remind you is that right here, we had a baptism last week and many people told you in their testimony of the hardship they have faced over the last year. Some of those stories are painful and they're hard. And we could go around this room, no doubt, and talk about the difficulties that are very real in your life, the the pain that is very, very tangible in your life, the hardship that just seems to, maybe never go away. Christmas doesn't make those go away, does it? And in fact, I would argue that maybe Christmas, for some of us, it actually makes that pain more intense because it reminds us of that. You know, despite the words of that Andy Williams song that we hear so often being played this time of year, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of year for all. And for some, it actually brings pain because it reminds us of what is no longer. It reminds us of the sting of lost loved ones. It reminds us of stress from family issues. Maybe even painful divorce. Or how do I, how do I keep this all together financially, God? How, how do I make this relationship work out? I, I can't seem to get along with this person or this person doesn't get along with me. I, how, do, how is this going to work? Pain is just Seems like it's everywhere we look. For many, Christmas is not merry and white. It's actually blue, perhaps even dark blue. And I don't know if you realize this, but the first Christmas was a blue Christmas. And today, we're going to look at a passage uh, that's usually left out entirely from Christmas. I'm just going to be honest with you. I have never heard this text preached during Christmas, ever, ever. It's not a go-to. It's usually bypassed altogether. It's a heavy text, no doubt. But I think Matthew wanted his audience to see and to hear something very, very important. I think the Spirit wants us to see and hear something as well. But because it's a heavy text, I'd like to pray because I, th- I know I need it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you that you have gathered us here to hear from you. We don't come to hear any man. We don't come to hear human wisdom. We come to kneel in your presence and hear from your word. God, you are good. You are faithful. And yet despite those things, Father, we know the pain and sorrow in our lives. It's very real. Father, you are no stranger to pain and sorrow. Your son is acquainted with grief, the scriptures tell us. Father, you are very near to the brokenhearted. And so we come before you to hear from you today because we need no other voice like we need yours. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the fourth week of our series called Fulfilled, and we are making our way through Uh, Matthew's gospel, one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote his gospel to the Jew, Matthew. Matthew was a Jew himself. So he's writing to his own kinsmen. And that matters significantly because as Matthew writes his gospel, something we've been telling you week after week, he tells of the events around Jesus' birth using several key Old Testament passages. And he uses them to show how Jesus fulfills God's promises. And today we're going to see how Jesus fulfills one of those Old Testament uh, passages Excuse me, to show that how he is our living hope. So if you have your Bibles, just join me in Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen or you can actually see our welcome center. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands if you do not own one. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 16, Matthew writes this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, Became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what the prophet or what was spoken, excuse me, by the Prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are. No more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. So Matthew is, he's kind of wrapping up the story of Jesus' birth here. We're actually kind of coming to the end of what we know as the birth narrative as Matthew writes it. And as we pick up the story, Jesus has already been born, okay? So Jesus is born, he's an infant. The family is actually on the run in Egypt. And then Matthew brings Herod back front and center for us to look and see what's going on in him. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to Herod when the wise men came to him and asked, where was Jesus born, right? He was troubled by the news. Do you remember that? Well, Troubled is probably too weak of a translation. Terrified is probably closer and more accurate as far as what Matthew was trying to convey. I tell you that because your spidey sense should have been activated as soon as you saw what Herod's reaction was to Jesus' birth. Because his next several moves, every single move he did after that, was to scheme. Scheme to kill the infant Jesus. He summoned the chief priests and the scribes to find out the place. He secretly summoned the wise men to figure out the time, right? And then he sends them on their way and to search for Jesus because he allegedly too wanted to worship Jesus. So the wise men go, they find Jesus, they worship him, they give him gifts, and then they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so go back home another way. And this is where our text picks up the story now that Herod finds out that the wise men don't actually come back to him. And he is furious, the text says. It's a little bit of a misleading word, to be honest with you, because the word Matthew uses to describe Herod's reaction here is found in only one other place in the New Testament. It's actually in Revelation 12, 17, where another disciple, John of Jesus, uses that word to describe Satan's anger when he discovers that Jesus has defeated all of his plots and schemes to destroy the church. See, even in the story of Jesus' birth, Matthew is acknowledging the reality of evil. The reality of evil. See, there's no tinsel here. There's no singing angels. The sweet sentiments that we all have of of infant Jesus, maybe him lying in a manger, Mary and Joseph kind of looking on as he laying in the hay. Those are long gone now. Those are nowhere to be found. And Matthew plunges us deep into a dark horror. A dark horror that is as much internal to Herod as it is external in the world. See, I imagine no one's a fan right now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw some people grabbing for their coats. No one comes to hear this story. No one wants to hear this story. And that's the point. I love the way one pastor reading this text puts it. He says, even though this is not the Christmas story we want, it may be the Christmas story we need. God has to come down to where we are because we can never get up to him. See, from the evil that's within Herod, he plans and orders the mass murder of all boys in and around Bethlehem. And Pastor Rob actually last week and several weeks over this, this series has told us of the kind of person Herod was, but it's worth repeating. He was a bad dude. There was nothing good about him. And based on the well documented history that we have of Herod and all of his life, all of his exploits, this massacre is probably mild. If I could even say it, it's low of importance compared to all the other evils that he's done. When Herod came to power, he killed all those people who ruled before him out of paranoia. He executed more than half of the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent of the religious supreme court for the nation of Israel. But he even executed his own wife and sons. See, Matthew is describing the evil that's within Herod, within the human heart, on the same level with Satan himself. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, uh, my question is why? why? Why tell of this event? None of the gospel writers, I don't know if you know this, none of them include this. None of them tell of this story. But see, Matthew wants his kin to see Jesus in a certain light. The Spirit wants you and I to see Jesus in a certain light. Not in the absence of evil. Not hiding from hardship or difficulty. But in the light of the promise of his compassionate presence in the hardest of times. In the pit of evil, Jesus comes to bring comfort and his presence. And so I'd like to just make this real for a second. Do you believe evil's real? Well, that's good, because if no one answered, we were going to have to stop right there. Maybe the shortest message in history. But evil is real, right? Sin is real. Brokenness is real. The world is broken. But what I say next might cause some tension. The world's broken because... We broke it. You and I broke the world. We have sin and evil in our hearts. We all have it, and it prompts us to sin. The Bible makes no distinction. Same words from even the prophet that, uh, that Matthew quotes from earlier in his own writings. Listen to this, Jeremiah seventeen 9. I'm sure you all know it well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But even James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight. and You quarrel. See, and I think in these realities, even at Christmas, we try to ignore this. We try to hide from it. We distract ourselves with so many things maybe even our traditions right we use christmas as that one day of year where we kind of like escape out of reality we can ignore everything because we have all the lights we have all the tinsel we have the trees the presents we try to ignore the reality that we see every day when we look out into the world but even when we look into the mirror we just want to forget that it's real we have a really hard time being honest about ourselves You know, an evil and sin don't really care what day it is. They don't care if it's your birthday. They don't care if you're celebrating a promotion or an anniversary, the birth of a child, a grandchild. They don't care how you feel. Evil and sin, they want what they want. They want your utter destruction, and they will fight to have it. But see, what Matthew is doing here is he's telling his readers that God doesn't pretend that things are Okay. God acknowledges that sin and evil are real and he sends his son precisely into the thick of it. That's what Christmas shows us. That the incarnation of Jesus is the divine acknowledgement that everything is not okay. That's why God is coming. So I think we understand the why Matthew is telling this story, but how should we respond? How do we look at such evil and respond Matthew shows us. Go back to verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, Matthew is doing something here. He's connecting the evil of Herod in in the day of Jesus' birth with an ancient prophecy of Jeremiah. And he's doing it to show us the, the role of lament. The role of lament. Now, a little uh, explanation is probably helpful here, so I'll try to give you one. Matthew quotes from a part of Jeremiah's prophecy that deals with Israel's grief over their exile. Right? They were exiled, they were captured by the Babylonians, and Jeremiah describes this grief from the perspective of a parent for their rebellious child. Right? He uses Rachel as a mother figure, who mourns intensely for her fallen children. Now, if you remember, Rachel's the wife of Jacob. She died after giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried outside of Bethlehem. She was often referred to as the mother of Israel. Right? And Ramah actually happened to be Jeremiah's hometown, was on the road to Bethlehem, but it also was on the path of the exile. So you can see as Jeremiah visually seeing the captives kind of going in exile, marching back to Babylonian lands. This was in a memory of intense grief and pain for every single Jew. So as Matthew pens this, every Jew would immediately know what he's talking about. Immediately the pain would come back fresh. The grief would come back and be so tangible for them. And so Matthew is connecting that pain personified in Rachel with the pain of the mothers in Bethlehem. He's reminding them to lament. He's calling his readers to lament over the evil of sin. We could leave it there. We could leave it abstract. But I'll just ask you, how do you respond to the evil and sin in your own life? How do you respond to the evil and sin in the lives of those around you, your family, your neighborhood, even the world at large? You try to isolate yourself from it say, hey, i got no appetite for that. I'm out. I, I don't want it. I don't want to look at it. don't want to pay attention. I just lock all the doors in my house, close the shutters, shut myself off, and just hunger down. See, the incarnation of Jesus doesn't allow us to think that way. Jesus precisely comes into the thick of it. The faith that does not acknowledge evil and sin and grieve over it is not an authentic faith. God, holy and righteous, absent of any evil, any sin whatsoever, came precisely into evil and sin to lead us out of it. But if we're too busy ignoring it, denying it, or hiding from it, I doubt that we truly see Christ in the eyes of reality. Because that's not at all the picture that the Bible gives us. In the birth of Christ, Matthew wants you He wants me to see God as our great comforter. Comforter who comes in the midst of our pain and promises to turn our lament into joy. One pastor and author explains lament like this. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. How we live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's goodness. I don't know what your familiarity with lament is, but lament is, is the thing that puts you on the pathway to hope. Lament is what turns our hearts towards God when the weight of all of the sorrow and pain we have over the evil and sin in our own life, in the lives of those we love, would tempt us to turn away from him, right? Lament turns us to God, the one who's the only one who can do anything about it, the only one who has done something about it. See, to lament is to exercise your faith, Lament is the front doorway to repentance. When we lament, we acknowledge sin and evil, and we grieve over it. Most importantly, though, lament helps us see the emergence of hope. Go back to the text. Look at verse 19. Listen to how Matthew carries on. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. In a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Hmm. So, Mary and Joseph, they're on the run, right? They're laying low in Egypt. They get word again from an angel in a dream. Man, this is all over this passage. God breaks through all of this evilness and he's still speaking. But things have gotten better now because the threat of Herod has passed because he's died. See, a turn had happened in their story. The outlook for the family had changed. And while he doesn't quote Jeremiah anymore, there's also a turn after Rachel's lament. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. See, God promised Israel that exile was not the end of their story. And likewise, Matthew sees a parallel here in the story of Jesus' birth. Do you see it? It's right there. But when Herod died, right there in those four words, there was a turn. And Matthew's showing his readers that despite the evil of their past... God had brought them out of their captivity. Despite the evil of your past, the evil that might seem even present, God has promised to deliver you. But now, Matthew is showing his kinsmen, the Spirit is showing us, that God's done it in power now, in the promise of de- and deliverance of his Son to us on Christmas Day. I love this. Evil doesn't win in the end. And evil has its own ending which starts with the arrival of the Savior. This is so beautiful, and I hope you that you see it. God is so good in this. It's his presence that signals the end for evil and sin and all the pain that comes with it. God is so good, and he gives us hope as that merges through there, through his birth of his son. You know, one of my favorite movies is Cinderella Man. I don't know, anybody seen Cinderella Man? Only a few. That's a DVD you need to get this Christmas. It's a true story of James J. Braddock, who is supposedly a washed-up boxer. Um, and he comes back to win the heavyweight championship of the world, but it's set during the Great Depression, and he uh, is kind of like out of boxing. He's not boxing at the time. Uh, he kind of had falling out. He loses some, uh, some matches and some fights, And he's in really desperate, dire straits. His family doesn't have anything. They don't have enough food to eat. They're not living in a good situation. And then he takes a fight on a flyer, a one-time fight out of desperation. He wins that and then gets several more fights. And he wins each one of those, and he works his way back to the heavyweight championship of the world. But in that championship fight, there's a point at which he's at his lowest. Things are not going well for him. He's losing, and his fearsome opponent seems to have the upper hand, and everything looks lost. But then there's a turn. He comes back, and he wins the fight, and it's a story of tremendous hope and perseverance that gets me every time. Church, this is the hope of the gospel. In the birth of Jesus, we see a significant turn in the history of the world. And as we behold the beauty of the infant Jesus and adore him as we should, God begins the fulfillment of that promise to deliver his people. In the sending of his son, God takes our grief over evil and sin, and he turns it into joy. Exile is over for all who come to Jesus. Let me be personal for a moment. As I said in the beginning, a lot of us are experiencing pain and struggle right now. And it's been, I'll be honest with you, it's five months since I came on board on staff and I have not experienced, even with you, something as hard as we've all walked through. With all of the loss that we've experienced, personally, corporately, as a family, with lost people and death, that pain is real. What you felt through it, that struggle, that hardship, it's real. I don't want to seek to minimize it. But if you are in Christ, then hope has emerged for you. Hope has emerged for you because to trust Christ is to have hope even though evil and sin is right there. That's the reality we have of our faith in Christ. To trust in Christ means that there is hope despite whatever comes our way. But perhaps that doesn't describe you. I imagine that maybe some have not trusted Christ. Well, if you haven't, I want to invite you to repent and believe in the one true Son of God who's come to take you home. He's come to take you home. Trust in Him, trust in Jesus for your hope and your salvation. You know, hope would be a good ending could be a good place to just stop right now and pray. But at the start, I told you that Matthew was going to show us how Jesus is our living hope. And what makes the hope that Jesus gives us a living hope is the promise of return. Look back at verse 21. Matthew writes, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So Joseph is told by an angel in dream that they can now return. But Matthew is still looking through the words in the eyes of Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. As Jesus' family returns to their own country, Matthew sees a greater return for God's people. The Spirit is telling you there's a greater return for you if you're in Christ. When Jesus returns, as he promised, he will usher us into our true home country in God's presence to enjoy Him and worship Him for all eternity. There is no better homecoming than that. In Jesus, our morning turns to hope, church. Our morning turns to hope. You know, oftentimes in this season, we hear this a lot and we maybe even say it, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Please keep saying it. Keep saying it. But I think our text today actually gives us the freedom to say much more. Jesus' birth is, in fact, God putting evil and sin on notice. It's the proof of that. Their end has already begun. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.